Are you ready to overcome the complexities and burdens that come with your success? Join the team at Centura Wealth Advisory in the Live Life Liberated podcast. Now, on to the show. Hello and welcome to Live Life Liberated with the team from Centura Wealth Advisory. Today, Jonathan Freeman is running the show and he's brought on a couple amazing guests who I know personally and I'm so excited for today. We've got John and Michael Paris from Copper Beach in studio, well, in their own studio. They have their own studio. That's, I mean, that tells you right there that these guys are pros. Jonathan, <laughs> good morning. How are you? Good morning, Eric. Great to hear your voice and Greg, glad to be back here with uh, you and both John and Michael. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, the big question of the day, why'd you bring John and Michael on the show today? Well, that is a great, great question. So uh, the topic of the day is buy-sell agreements. And uh, I wanted to bring in John and Michael for a couple reasons. One, they're really knowledgeable in the space. Two, we work uh, with them quite a bit, and I'll have them elaborate a little bit about that. And their their model uh, is quite unique, and I thought they could spend a little bit of time at the front of this describing Copper Beach and how they serve their clients. But ultimately, I came into this um, uh, both having prior experience dealing with buy-sell arrangements on, in partnerships, but also having done one for our own company uh, as our partner team was looking to revamp our structure and make it more tax efficient. I now have some pretty deep insight and was excited to share both John and Michael's experience. Uh, Michael also being an attorney has a lot of technical expertise in this arena. And we're really just hoping to bring in some really high level nuggets and um, experiences from both of them as well as us so that our clients and those listening to the Live Life Liberated podcast uh, can take something away and hopefully learn from it as they're setting up their small business or evaluating their partnership for the long-term benefit of all the holders. So with that, let me introduce both uh, John and Michael, who are a father-son duo uh, on the other side of the coast of the United States. You might be able to tell from their accent, but uh, with that, let me uh, say good morning, gentlemen. Good morning, Jonathan. Good morning, Jonathan. And you're paying us too, right, Jonathan? (laughs) <laughs> is that how uh, this works a pro bono <laughs> <laughs> so john and michael uh probably the audience right. doesn't know your name or your the sound of your voice but uh, john maybe you can start as the the founder of copper beach uh describing who is copper beach how you started it and what clients you serve yeah we get that question a lot and, and jonathan thanks for having us uh, we're, we're we're excited about today um the copper beach model I'll keep it. I'll keep it short. It was really a model that was that was in a transition over the last twenty five years developing. And, and the reason why I say that is a lot of the families that I worked with in the past were were concerned about a, a few areas of their planning, and one was a lack of coordination amongst their current team of advisors. So, so I got that messaging from them, and I. So when I looked at my practice, I said, how do I build a practice that can help my clients collaborate with all their key advisors? So that was one insight that I, that I found along the way. The, the second one was, and I, I ask this question often to families that I work with or, or we work with, who, who on your advisory team do you currently have that if something happened to you as the leader of the family, who's going to walk down the, the, the life cycle of your spouse and your children to give them financial advice and to protect them. And I get blank stares. So the second piece of what Copper Beach does is that legacy of advice through the generations. So I looked at that as being another part of, of Copper Beach's vision and philosophy. Um, and, and the market that we serve is really attuned to that. Um, most of the families we work with are affluent 
have privately held businesses that need to transfer generationally or to be sold somewhere along the way. And they needed a good think tank. And that's, that's what we do here. We think through projects and opportunities for our families. And then we outsource to wonderful people like you, Jonathan, for key areas. So, so Copper Beach is an outsourcing strategy. But most importantly, we act as a family CFO, if that makes sense to a lot of listeners. You know, if you look at a company structure, they have a CFO that runs the firm financially. But most families that we team up with don't have a family CFO. So we, we take that role and we act at, at, at that level to advise on all financial affairs. So that's the, the history of Copper Beach. And, and uh, it's been pretty exciting for us along the way. That's great. And so how do you and Michael work together? Michael, you want to give a little very bit carefully. about what you bring to the equation? <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, very carefully. No, we, we, <laughs> we get along great. But uh, I, I was in, uh, I had graduated college way back when and was looking sort of what I would do in the next stage of my life and wasn't quite sure what that entailed um, and decided to go back to law school because I felt that that would be a way to really have a flexible degree in the, because I wasn't sure exactly what I wanted to do. And when I was in law school, I took a lot of tax planning classes. I took a lot of estate planning and business succession classes and knew that my father was working in the you know, financial services arena. And so it, I was really interested in that whole side of, of the law. So I decided not to be a litigator or do trial work or things like that and really wanted to help families uh, focus on avoiding problems uh, upfront by doing a lot of the planning work that that we now do, as opposed to trying to fix conflicts after they occur, right? So that was when I graduated. Copper Beach was being formed by my father, and so it was kind of a nice timing. So I went right into right into working with uh, with Copper Beach after law school, and so I really operate as the planning director. Timing is everything in our business, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Yeah, far you added piece to that. He, he, Michael came to me. He said, "Okay, now that I graduated law school, do I work with a law firm and get some experience, or do I work for you immediately?" So I said, "Well, here's a couple of attorneys that are good friends of mine. You can go talk to them, and they'll give you advice." So they both gave him the same advice. Michael, your dad will teach you a lot more in a shorter period of time and pay you a lot more money. So it was also <laughs> motivated for Michael saying, "Yeah, well, that makes sense to me." So it worked out. It's working out great. Well, thank you both for that quick introduction, a little bit of background on Copper Beach. So um, buy sells, they're near and dear to my heart. Um, I was thinking about how we set this up and, you know, I, I kind of look at them similar uh, as a governance tool, you know, like the Constitution of the United States. It's really the Constitution or part of the operating agreement of a company that might be a, a partnership of two, that might be a family run business, or it might be multiple partners uh, like us where we have succession management and trying to create a longevity plan for the structure. But when setting it up, there's a lot of considerations. There's a lot of questions that need to be answered, a lot of struggles, because ultimately we're trying to, to uh, figure out those tough questions ahead of time and provide a guidebook or um, an orderly transition um, of those partner interests, um, despite a variety of different situations. So Michael, since you're the attorney in the room, maybe you can give us a little bit of background on what are buy sells and and how are, why are they important? Sure, a, a buy sell agreement, like you alluded to, Jonathan. I really like that term you use, a, a constitution of a business. But buy sell agreements are typically put in place by business owners, multi owner business owners, to really deal with how the ownership interest of that 
uh, business is is handled. Uh, and normally, when you think about a, a business, a privately held small business, the partners that are involved in that business are really really doing business together. That they're very most of the time unique to the to the business. They provide a really um, specific role to that business, and it isn't as if somebody else could come into that role and take over quickly. So they they really these buy sell agreements really are designed to typically restrict the transfer of ownership to third parties. And then again, as you alluded to, really provide that orderly succession and transition of ownership. And that's really the major purpose of a buy sell agreement. That's great. So um, what are the different, you know, options out on the table? Um, obviously, most corporate or companies are formed with a corporate entity type, but um, there's so many different scenarios or options on the table. What do you see out there? Um, do you have a favorite structure or does it really just depend on the circumstances and the goals of the, the family or the partnership? Yeah, I think it, I, I think it really depends on the business, uh, the, the type of people that are involved in the business, the type of business uh, that, that we're dealing with. So you can have these agreements really work with any type of business. It can be a corporation, you know, C corporation, S corporation. It could be an LLC or a partnership. There may be little different nuances in terms of what language is included in that uh, in that buy sell agreement. But the general principles are pretty pretty much the same, at least in terms of restricting the transfer of ownership between them. Um, but I know, you know, most of our clients, when they're looking at from a flexibility standpoint, again, it really does depend on the type of business that you're in, but LLCs tend to really be probably, uh, that I think that we work with probably more of the, the more common ownership structure that we yes. help uh, draft these, um, uh, documents for or help design, I should say. Yeah, I know. Speaking from personal experience, um, we were an S corp or had multiple S corps, and as part of our restructuring, we went to uh, both a S and an LLCs to provide a lot more options and flexibility in structuring uh, our partnership transfer. Yeah. Um, so I, there's certainly that's why you want to have an expert, someone such as yourself, who's done it to be able to advise and give good insight in terms of the pros and the cons, the tax benefits and uh, the restrictions. Many cases, various corp types have restrictions, which you really need to understand to understand what are the implications. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'll jump in here for a second. And, and you're, you're both correct. These, these documents are the guiding light of the partnership. But we take it to another level, Jonathan, uh, most of the time where we start explaining to the client that not only is buy-sell agreements important to the partners, it's also important to the employees that work for the company. Because if you have an unsuccessful shareholder agreement and something happens along the way, not only do you affect the partners' lives and their families, you also can affect the people that are working for the organization. So you might have, a, 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 I've seen it in the past where the company has you know lost 50, 75% of their capacity because the disconnect between the partners and and people's jobs were affected and actually lost their jobs because of it. So when you think through these shareholder agreements, you got to add in that there's other people involved in this agreement or could be affected by it. So I just want to make sure I, I, I brought that point up. Yeah, that's a, a great uh, clarification as well. So it could segue into you know, what, what are the things that we're trying to protect against when we start laying out the, the options and scenarios? You know, what, what are um, what sometimes are referred to as triggering events 
that ultimately need to be thought through and the nuance uh, built in. Can you maybe Michael or John either give us some examples of things that most people don't want to think about, but ultimately need to uh, in order to cover all the bases? Sure. Yeah. And, and one thing that I think it's important to bring up as well with these, with these agreements is very often we advise our families to really start thinking about drafting these agreements pretty much right at the outset of the business being formed. And the reason why we typically recommend that is because usually everybody's, everybody's happy, everybody's excited about uh, the business and the opportunities that can come from that. And these agreements it, it are really, I think, best drafted when everybody's in a positive mindset because you're going to put down things in these agreements that are going to affect every partner equally, right? So this is designed, these agreements are designed to be uh, fairly treated in, in terms of the partners. And so if a conflict arises, it's very difficult, as you can imagine, to probably get these documents drafted at that time. So we typically would recommend that these documents get drafted very early on in the business's formation um, as quickly as you can. But uh, Jonathan, you alluded to the the triggering events. And so the, these are, we call them triggering events as these are certain things that happen that will trigger the buy-sell or trigger a transfer of ownership um, between the partners in that business. And so the most common ones are what we call perhaps our involuntary triggering events. We, we like to break these triggering events up into involuntary versus voluntary events. And so the most common involuntary triggering event is the death of a shareholder or, or a partner. So how does that, um, how does that event affect the business and the transfer? So that's, that's one typically. The disability of the shareholder. There could be an accident that it happens and one share, shareholder partner is unable to continue working in the business. How does, how does that um, transition happen? Uh, there's also things like the um, divorce uh, of a shareholder and perhaps a uh, stock or, or ownership interest that becomes a part of that marital settlement. Is that an event that you want to consider in your agreement? Uh, things like bankruptcy of of a shareholder. There's a really, really a lot of these, we call them involuntary triggering events, that it, I think are very important to include in these agreements. We very often review buy-sell agreements that maybe handle the uh, death or disability of a shareholder, but don't mention something like a, a, a bankruptcy of a shareholder. And that could be a, a, a very important component that, you know, again, you obviously hope that that never occurs, but if it does, this this agreement, as you pointed out earlier, Jonathan, acts as that that constitution, that that law, if you will, in terms of determining what happens then. So those are those are the most common triggering events that uh, that we deal with. And maybe that you can touch on maybe some of the other voluntary ones, uh, triggering events that, that come up from time to time. Yeah, I mean, when we design these agreements, Jonathan, we we it, it nothing's off the table. We talk about all the key. What if scenarios? That's the term I use a lot. Is it what if, you know, one of the partners, uh, to Michael's point, got divorced? How do we handle all that? What's, what language in the agreement that makes a smooth transition on that particular event? Um, there are some cases along the way where one of the partners, um, had, got involved with some drugs and caused some problems with the firm. So how, how do you deal with a drug issue or an alcoholism issue? There's a lot of different, what if scenarios that occur, and to Michael's point earlier, the, the, the sooner you address those, 
the better, because again, everybody's in good spirits and all these things. Well, they're never going to happen. Not with us. We're great partners or great, we're great, great friends. Well, that doesn't always happen that way. Uh, partnerships are very difficult, um, um, projects long term for, for businesses. And that's why the more flexible these documents are, the more accurate they are to these events, the safer it is to act upon these, these, uh, documents in case it's an event. So, so you really have to think deeply about, um, being honest with each other that these things could possibly happen. We need to get these in the documents. Now, when we read these documents, when we do our audits, we find that, that a lot of these are missing. So I would advise anybody who's listening that if you have a shareholder agreement, go back to your, your advisor and make sure you checked all the boxes and make sure all these positions are covered. Now, again, to Michael's point earlier, you do it now or when the, business started up versus trying to change it three, four, five years down the road. Because you and I both know, Jonathan, relationships change, business structure change. And I'll give you an example. One of the questions I asked the both partners in this particular case I'm, I'm, I'm referencing, I said, when you look at your document, who has an advantage of dying first or second? And I get the strangest looks. Now, what do I mean by that is when you look at shareholder agreements, Let's say, Jonathan, you and I are in a partnership and the company was worth $2 million. So I own a million, you own a million of value. Well, if you and I are working on a, on a, on a deal that was going to have impacted the company two, three years from now, and you know I've been working on that for, for a couple of years, and all of a sudden I suddenly pass away, well, that deal doesn't die, but it just added a tremendous amount of value to the company. Are you preparing your document to share that success in the future? So there's a lot of great conversations we have around these topics, and it gets everybody a little focused. But I think they're important to look Absolutely. at. Absolutely, and I couldn't agree with you more. You know, it's really devil in the details, and yes. more often than not, I've seen that. You know, it's things like valuation that become, oh, yes. and ultimately, it's the money that the business is worth that drives dis, um, discord or drives issues amongst partners yeah. and/or the surviving uh, individuals that would ultimately have those interests and. Um, I just speaking from experience, knowing if it's too vague in the agreement, it just leads to more cost, more stress, and ultimately, um, you know, a lot of legal bills when it, yeah. when you're dealing with, uh, disagreements. And so the better you can flush it out, be very specific and precise, ultimately that's going to lead to a much smoother transition. Um, but talk, giving the topic of valuations, um, what are some, you know, key considerations or, or key things to think about in valuing a business, especially when it's a closely held concern. There's just two partners. And ultimately, like you said, that business can uh, dramatically change in value with just the incapacity of, of one of the key members. Yeah, I think valuation is probably, other than the triggering events that we maybe touched on earlier, the valuation of the company for purposes of this buy sell is probably the other really, really key um, topic that we spend a lot of time with our families and business owners on on helping them design. So some of the the things that you want to consider is that, that scenario you just mentioned, Dad. You know what what if this event is triggered, but we have this really really um, positive outlook in the future? How does that affect the valuation? And so typically putting in the the agreement a very detailed valuation metric that everybody agrees upon is really, really key. And there's, we've seen a lot of different ones. Um, sometimes we have seen agreements where uh, both partners have essentially 
uh, if you're if it's a two partner business uh, to get together once a year and come up with a certificate of value and that gets put into the corporate file and and every year as an example they are basically certifying together what the value of the company is uh, that is good or bad sometimes there's we've seen that where it's not really formally done it's just sort of uh, well I think it's worth this and and uh, and then we certify it well as you can imagine that might that might be perfectly fine, but that might not be the best way to value it as well. So we also see things like uh, formula clauses, right? So maybe there's a an EBITDA formula that's included in that, that shareholder agreement or buy-sell to be able to establish the value. But uh, that maybe is looking in the past a bit more, not looking in the future as that scenario you mentioned, Dad. That, that EBITDA formula might not look at well, what's what's happening in the future? Is this really a true value of of the the company? So that often leads many families to look at getting a formal appraisal uh, for purposes of pegging that value for the buy sell agreement. So that, as you can imagine, is a little bit more expensive. You have to hire a a qualified appraisal to do that, and typically, there's one side, the buyer and the seller, are typically hiring their own valuation teams to do that. Uh, there's a lot of ways you can structure it. There's no rules around it, but that's very often what we see when the business decides to go to the appraisal route is, you know, buyer hires an appraisal to to value it, seller does it on their side, and maybe we take an average between the two or we, we somehow agree uh, what the value will be based on those two uh, different appraisals. So those are, I would say, the three principal general ways that families or, and business owners can really look at how to value the business for purposes of this buy-sell agreement. Yeah, and, and ultimately, once you've agreed upon a value, um, th- there's that other key component, which is how is it going to get paid? And in many mm-hmm. cases, yes. that, that payment structure is is left uh, a little ambiguous, or more, more importantly, there's structures or elements like insurance that can be put in place to minimize the impact of the business when having to pay out uh, that value to, uh, the remaining, uh, individuals. So I know, uh, both of us, uh, deal in, in various, uh, levels of insurance and types of insurance, but maybe you can use a few examples of how uh, insurance might come into play in terms of getting a well-protected and comprehensive plan in place, uh, to make sure the ongoing business, uh, isn't impacted. Sure. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a really, really good topic uh, to cover. And if you think about, uh, insurance as, you know, as an asset class that could be used for a lot of different, different, um, things in terms of facilitating this buy sell agreement. The most common one, as you can imagine, is in that death scenario. So there's typically a policy that's owned on each of the partners in the business. And if one of the partners passes away, the death benefit is used to facilitate the buy sell agreement. Now, it's interesting from our experience with, with buy sell agreements is, Really, the the death scenario, fortunately, is really not the most likely triggering event, believe it or not. However, it tends to be the most common one that we see, and it should be. It should certainly be included in in a buy sell agreement design. But it's really interesting when you think about well, how it's probably the most unlikely event to happen. What's more likely is um, a partner 
just really doesn't get along with the other one and they want to get bought out or one of the partners becomes disabled. And so when we look at insurance as, a, as an asset class, as I made mention earlier, how can this policy be used to also assist in those types of scenarios um, and triggering events as well? And so that's really where you could sometimes look at cash value life insurance as, a, as an example, that that cash value can be used to facilitate that buyout. Um, if a partner retires or a partner wants to withdraw from the business. And so there's a lot of different nuances and ways that uh, life insurance can be designed to facilitate and to assist in the buy-sell triggering events. Yeah, and that's a case-by-case scenario, Jonathan. I mean, every, every family worker is different. So it, there's a lot of flexibility in designing these particular um, shareholder um, agreements with insurance funding, um, and that, that should be looked at very carefully. Um, I'm going to just stop for a second. I, I, I want to talk about a case study that had the most impact with me, and it was, it was a long time ago. Um, I'm going to go backwards a little bit. If you don't have a buy-sell agreement, you should listen to this messaging. I work with, a, I work with two brothers. They own, a, they own a company down the street from where I, where, where I live. And, and Mark was running the company. He was operations manager, and Jim was the marketing gentleman who went out and promoted the company, did all the golf outings and all the things you, we see that the business owners do from a marketing standpoint. And through the years, he became an alcoholic. He had three DWIs. That's when you're allowed to get three. Um, and the fourth one he had, he killed a little girl on a bike. God, it was terrible. It was hit all the local papers and it affected the business dramatically from that point on. And to make a long story short, the brother actually went to jail. Um, his spouse knocked on the door, Mark's door one day, and said, where's my check? And Mark said, well, because Jim has caused all this problem, we, we, don't, we can't afford, we had to hire someone to replace him. We don't have extra cash flow to pay you. So she took him to court, and the judge said, do you have a shareholder agreement? And he said, no, sent her a check, because she was still 50% owner of the business. So it caused all kinds of problems by not having an agreement. And so that's why when you look at this concept or this strategy, you have really have to be serious about it. Everybody should have a shareholder structure to protect everybody involved, not only the partners, but all the people that work for the firm. Yeah, but and, and to add to that, if you imagine, obviously having the agreement itself is a, is a critical component. But if that business owner that in your story, dad, had, let's say, as an example, a life insurance policy, that could have been used to help facilitate that, uh, that buyout there as well, because that could have been used as a way to pay the, uh, the spouse of that, that partner that went to jail. So again, it's really important that businesses think proactively about about these decisions and again start them early and don't wait until there's a that terrible event to, to start thinking about it because by that time it's it's too late yeah that's and that reminds me of another very serious topic in these designs it's a discounted value and, and what we mean by that is if someone triggers an event uh, as a partner to another partner let's say uh, i walked you know, michael walked in tomorrow and said hey dad i'm out of here uh, you got a week <laughs> replace me well, by Michael leaving the firm, that's going to affect my business. So if, if I'm going to buy him out, he's causing me stress to do that. So should I, should I pay him at a dollar for dollar value as his 50% share? The answer is no. It shouldn't be that way. 
he, that should be discounted because you're causing me to affect the business. So we've seen discounts in these agreements up to 65% of the value to a partner that causes these type of transactions that put stress on the company. So again, when you look at these agreements, we have what, a four-hour conversation with about these guys to really design these a specific way. But everyone's customized that we work with. A lot of these, a lot of these structures uh, can be um, flexible in nature, but they all are very, very important to these agreements. Totally agree. Okay, last topic, guys. So both of us are, are highly sensitive about tax and tax efficiency um, and how you structure these buyouts. Ultimately, there's a lot of decisions that you make that ultimately will impact not only the exiting partner, but the remaining partners uh, who are left. So um, either of you, John or Michael, maybe you can talk a little bit about some of the considerations that you want to think about in setting up the buyout structure uh, so that it can be most highly efficient on tax. Yeah, that's a really, really good point. Um, and there's two principal ways that these agreements can be structured. And either or will, will have a really big impact on on taxes that, that you mentioned, Jonathan. So the first way is a cross-purchase agreement. And so in a cross-purchase agreement, the partners themselves as individuals are responsible for facilitating the purchase of the departing owner's interest, whatever, however that may occur. All right. So they, they themselves as individuals will make that purchase. The other way is an entity redemption agreement. And in that type of agreement by sell, the company itself buys the stock from the departing owner, not the individual shareholders. And that could have a big impact tax-wise, and it really has a lot to do with the income tax basis of the shares to the remaining shareholders or partners in that business. So if you think about a, a you know, it's, it's a simple example. If you have two owners of a business, they each own 50%, and let's just assume for the sake of, of argument, they have zero basis, income tax basis in their, uh, in, in the company when they started it. And let's say one partner um, wants to retire or wants to leave the business and wants to trigger that buy-sell agreement from the uh, for, and, and withdraw from the company. If the, you have a cross-purchase agreement, the second partner will be actually purchasing the value, whatever it is at that time, from the departing owner. So now if you look at that remaining shareholder's income tax basis, he, uh, he now owns 100% of the company, but 50% of that company has his zero tax basis when he started, and the other 50% has uh, the, his, his basis in those shares is whatever the purchase price was at, at the time the buy-sell was triggered. Okay, So if he then turned around to sell the interest in the business, he's going to have a much better tax uh, income tax result from that transaction because half of the value has a, a, an, an elevated income tax basis. Okay. It's little, you have to, you have to follow the bouncing ball here a little bit. It's, it's a bit complicated, but you have to <laughs> then, con you have to contrast that with the entity redemption agreement, which is in that scenario, the business is really going to be buying the shares. So when partner one departs, partner two now owns hundred percent of the business, but his income tax basis does not change. It's still zero, but he owns hundred percent of the company. Okay, so if he then, again, in our example, went to sell the business, he's going to have a, a zero basis on 100% of that value. So again, this is really some of the considerations that we help our families and business owners with in, in considering to design these agreements because that can have a really, really big impact long term. 
So you really need some good tax advisors along the way here. So uh, you have to work very closely with your team to make sure all these uh, these tax views are 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 discussed and make sure everybody understands them and how and the impact it has for the partners on the, on the exit. Yeah, can't agree with you more there, John. So, um, well, that was actually very enlightening. And uh, maybe Eric, uh, you can uh, help close us out here. I thought it was both in, uh, enlightening for myself and uh, hopefully for the audience as well. And just as just you know, just touching the surface on some of those key issues that uh, all partners that are are trying to you know run and maintain their business long term uh, need to think about as part of uh, their organizational docs. Yeah, absolutely. The, the nice thing is, is that both John and Michael, Michael, especially you in this scenario, you have a way of explaining these things. It really breaks it down. Um, it leads to a lot of other questions, but it, it, it's much more clear for the entire audience. So I appreciate everything that you and John have brought to the table today. And Jonathan, of course, thank you for bringing them on as special guests on your podcast. Oh, my pleasure. And uh, you might want to give them a quick little punchline for uh, their own podcast, which I, I often listen to and find extremely informative as well. The uh, truth about wealth. Isn't that correct, gentlemen? Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. That's a lot of fun to do. We enjoy these. Yeah, absolutely. And you guys have done a ton of episodes. I mean, there's, I don't, what episode are you guys on anyway? 45, I think. I think Ooh. so. It's into the 40s. Yeah. 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 And, and they're just absolutely packed with all sorts of good information. And uh, I mean, who couldn't sit and listen to you guys all day anyway? I mean, it's, it's fantastic. <laughs> My wife. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fair Come enough. On, I think I had a we can all agree with that one. Uh, my wife as well. She's like, oh, she goes, that job. again? She doesn't listen to this podcast, right? <laughs> she, exactly. No, she doesn't. <laughs> She's not going to listen to this one. <laughs> all right, gentlemen, thank you so much for your time today. It was a pleasure uh, listening to all thank of you, you just talk about this stuff. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you, Jonathan. Thanks, Jonathan. And, and Always Eric. a pleasure, my friend. This is great. Have a great day, guys. And of course, the last thank you goes to you, the listening audience. Thank you for tuning in and listening to the Live Life Liberated podcast with the team from Centura Wealth Advisory. If you have not subscribed to the podcast yet, please click the subscribe now button below. This way, when they come out with a new podcast, it'll show up directly on your listening device. This makes it much easier to share these podcasts with your friends and family. Again, thank you so much for listening today. For everyone at Centura Wealth Advisory, this is Eric Johnson reminding you to live your best day every day. And we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to the Live Life Liberated podcast. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Centura Wealth Advisory. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning. Centura Wealth Advisory, Centura, is an SEC-registered investment advisor with its principal place of business in San Diego, California. Centura and its representatives are in compliance with the current registration and notice filing requirements imposed on SEC-registered investment advisors, in which Centura maintains clients. Centura may only transact business in those states in which it is notice filed or qualifies for an exemption or exclusion from notice filing requirements. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Tax relief varies based on client circumstances and all clients do not achieve the same results. 